Med Family is a show about a family journeying through medical school with kids and navigating married life. Tag along to see how we got here and where this journey is taking us. Hello, welcome to another week of our podcast, Med Family. I'm Eric Acker, the host, with my wife, Karen. Hey, guys. So, uh, we have a few things we're going to talk about. We we wrapped up the emergency room rotation just this last week on Sunday was our last shift and we started continuity clinic this week and of course this week is also Thanksgiving so I guess before we get into any of that how's it going Karen? (laughs) It's going um we started speech this week um speech therapy yeah for our middle child and um we're gonna do a road trip for uh, Thanksgiving and yeah, this is our last uh, weekend with you for a long time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I think we were looking at the schedule, and I think Eric only really has two days off after this week. Is that right? Two days off for the whole... For the whole month. Well, because two... Oops, loud. Sorry. Because two of your days off are going to be... Um, your step three. So technically you have four days off, one day off a week, um, but you'll have step three and then we'll have Christmas. So, um, oh no, I have other days off. You do? Yeah. I have like the 30th, the 4th, the 11th, the 14th, and the 22nd. What? So you'll have three days off because two of those days are step. No, step is 19th and 21st. Oh. Yeah, sorry for the audio <laughs> version of the platform. There's there's a few more days off in there. Okay, well that's better than I thought it was, um, but uh, I think this next month is going to be. It's going to be busy. busy. Uh, I I start as Karen was alluding to. I I do finish at the continuity clinic this week. We get a short week. We. Really, only have three days of clinic. We have Thursday and Friday off because Thursday is Thanksgiving, and I guess Friday is a hospital holiday for some reason. But <laughs> not going to complain. I don't have to work on Thursday or Friday. And then I have Saturday and Sunday off, and then Monday I start back into the hospital as on my nights. I do two weeks of nights. Um, I'll have a couple of days off in there, and then I go back. I go straight into. My hospital inpatient rotation, which I'm thankfully not assigned to eat south this time, <laughs> so I'll I'll be on a lower acuity floor. So we'll see how that goes. Um, and I'm on that for two weeks, and somewhere towards the end of those two weeks, I get to be uh, taking step three. So that'd be very exciting. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but I mean, in good news, um, he and Mike have gotten there. Um, research project done. Or yeah, we we well we have everything. We we have written everything up. So we, um, Mike is the other another resident in in my cohort, and we have written a a case report. Essentially, he he had one he dug up or he found, and I have a case report that I need to finish writing up. But 
we have a symposium at Campbell University, I think in January, and all residents have to basically present something at the symposium. So we have con- gone, gone in together on a research project. Um, a couple other residents have jumped in on with it. Me and Mike have basically written up the entire case report, and then we are handing it off to the other two people to write it up or put it on a poster, and uh, we will have submitted the, uh, probably within the next day or so, we will have the abstract submitted for legal reviews and whatnot, so we'll have an abstract ready to go, we'll have the poster hopefully ready to go in the next couple weeks, and then we will have at least one research thing checkmarked, and then uh, we will probably try to turn that research poster board into an actual uh, case report to a journal. So that's hopefully you're going to be two <laughs> academic things. Uh, granted, the first, they're both the same thing. But um, then, of course, there's mine, which I'll try to get done uh, here in the next few months. And that'll be three academic things in the first six months of my residency. So that will be good it's um he's only required to have one um but if you are going into a fellowship it looks good yeah you want to have lots of research in a fellowship uh, for fellowship applications and uh you start really kind of going that direction and in application and really doing a lot of stuff in your second year so i'm trying to get stuff knocked out in the first year so that the second year I'm not trying to pile on too much, so we're doing our best. <laughs> um, to, you know, he, uh, Mike wants to go into fellowship as well, so we're both helping each other out here on this in this endeavor. Uh, but we'll see how everything goes. What uh, is he wanting to? Uh, so he's interested in palm crit. He's also interested in cardiology, and then he's also interested in just being a, a private practice. Okay. So he he's. Kind of has a, a door open for a lot of different things, but he he feels like if he wants to be able to do any of the fellowship stuff, he needs to have the research. So it's better to have it than not have it. <laughs> Unless you know for sure you don't want to do any of this stuff, then research is, um, you don't have to do it. You can do it if you're really interested in it, and there's certainly there's people out there who are interested in it. There's, of course, there's the hard research, like the bench research, um, and there's the, bit, the research where you're pouring over data, doing surveys and all that sort of stuff. And then there's our research, which essentially is an interesting case. It's a little bit unique. Uh, maybe you don't see it very often, but something that people should be aware of and hopefully expands the medical knowledge. So in our particular case, we have a, a patient who uh, had basically sh- uh, stroke-like symptoms in a positive MRI. Uh, CT was negative. But the MRI was positive for a stroke in multiple parts of the brain that correlate with her symptoms. Well, on presentation, she had a rapid recovery and regain, regaining of function, uh, was discharged home, uh, even prior to the MRI being read. But um, she uh, had was relatively young, had really no risk factors, like not a smoker, not a drinker, uh, no high lipids. It was like a Chadvas risk of like less than 0.3% uh, CVA in, in the next 10 years. Or so. so she was a very low risk. Only risk factor really was that she took a pot brownie 
And uh, so we did a little bit of research on it, and it looks like there's actually a good number of cases. So this is not a unique first-time first case, um, but there's plenty of cases where THC has been implicated in cardiovascular issues. There's also, um, you know, obviously cerebrovascular, so which is what we're looking at. So uh, it's an interesting presentation. It's something to kind of keep in the back of your mind when you're de- te- te- you know, working on a patient who comes to the ED or is presenting with stroke-like symptoms, and you're trying to find what's the underlying cause. Is it uh, hypertension? Is it, you know, is it a car- is a thrombotic embolism? What is it? What caused this? And this is something you can kind of think about as well. Uh, so it's an interesting case. It's new, interesting. Uh, I have my own personal opinions on marijuana, which I don't really want to invite the, the <laughs> cur- people who are, have also strong opinions on the topic to also comment. But let's just say it's an interesting case. Uh, regardless of where you come down on, on the topic of marijuana and its legalization, um, the fact still remains that there are risks, just like with drinking alcohol, with smoking cigarettes. Uh, there's always risk for everything we do in life. And as physicians, we just need to know how to care for our patients. And we need to know what the risks are and what to look for so that we can treat and advise our patients better. Uh, so that's all we're going to say about that. <laughs> um, yeah, so we did the research. Um, we got that kind of knocked out that way before the deadline, which is always nice. Yeah. Um, and then uh, we, Karen mentioned we're going on the road trip. We're going to visit a, a friend of Karen's from college days that we haven't heard or seen from in... Since college days. <laughs> since college, I haven't ever seen these people, so this will be fun. Now they're going to see all seven or eight of us, so... <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, it's funny how life is, because we... Um, she grew up in Oregon, Eugene, Oregon, and I grew up in Washington, and now we are both... We've moved around a lot, and... We're both in North Carolina, so um, yeah, we'll see what where her life has taken her and where ours has taken us, and it'll be fun to catch up. Yeah, this should be interesting for sure. Um, and then we wrapped up the ED, so we had kind of a nice little spree of three ED shifts to end everything, two in red zone, one in green zone. Um, I, I did on my second, the last one. I pseudo, I would say very softly, got to lead a code. Uh, in some ways, I think it's nice that they, they allowed it to me to be a part of it more than usual. A lot of times when an off-service resident goes into the ED, they, they, let, they let us see patients and we they do a few things, but on the actual codes that come in, we're kind of shuffled off to the side. We, you, know, you can try to help out as much as you want, but realistically, you're not. You're not really going to be doing the intubation. You're not going to be setting up the lines, anything like that. But on one particular code that came in, they did allow me to sort of run it where I really, my biggest contribution was telling the nurse to push one unit of uh, epinephrine, which initially I was a little worried. I was like, I don't remember what the dose is. And the resident was like, just tell them to push a unit. They, they know what to do. And so that's what I did. Um, that was essentially as much as I did. The, the senior resident still called time of death and all that other stuff. So yeah, I say that it's nice that they let us do this. Like occasionally there's going to be codes that are going to come in. And 
Uh, I know there's the uh, there's always the optimistic person out there who thinks, well, they come into the hospital, you can revive them, and the reality is is that there's um, usually not a lot of different things that we are doing in the hospital that they are not doing on the ambulance. Uh, you know, they're doing chest compressions, they're administering drugs, they're shocking the patient if they have a shockable rhythm, and that's all stuff that they can do in the hospital. We can add lines, we can add some other drugs if we feel the need, but realistically, um, we don't generally have a whole lot of other interventions to offer. Uh, cardiac arrest, not every code, obviously, but in, in the cause of cardiac arrest, there's not a whole lot, especially if they're asystole, like they're coming in with no pulse. There's not a whole lot a lot of hospitals have to offer. Um, I, I can't think of anything off the top of my head that we are lacking that would give patients a competitive edge. But, you know, um, the ambulance do their job. They come in. We continue the work for a little bit longer. But if you're hearing about a patient who's like, I don't know, let's say 70 years old, and they were found down, not really sure how long they were down, and then you're doing... Then you hear that they're doing like chest compressions. You know, they're doing CPR for the last thirty minutes, and they're still ten minutes out. And it's like, okay, they've been doing CPR on a person who was who has been down. They didn't witness a collapse and start CPR right away. The the patient was found down in their room, and then we initiated CPR. And like, it's going to be forty minutes of CPR on a seventy year old. Like the odds of this person coming back are pretty, pretty slim. So we don't, we don't. I think in the past, I've heard people joke about the the use of the term soft code. Um, and I think this is kind of essentially what they mean by it, because like soft code has the implication of like we're not going to try very hard. Like, oh, compressions are like minimal. We're barely pushing on the chest. Oh, we're. It has that implication, but like everyone's doing their job. I would say in this, the the real soft code is, quote, unquote, a patient that you know coming in has very slim odds of being revived. And you're going to do a few rounds of CPR. You're going to push a few drugs, but you're not going to... You're, you're not, not going to give spend them, three hours. You're not going to spend three hours on this. You're, you're not going to push a ton of epinephrine. Uh, you, if you're not getting any rhythm, you slap the ultrasound on to look at the heart. If the heart's not moving at all, it's probably better just call it. Um, and again, we have this, there's a, another great debate of, um, you know, how long should you run codes? It's a really physician to physician mentality. And of course, the patient's presentation uh, will create some variation amongst that. And then there's, of course, the, like, I guess the, <laughs> the theory or your thought process behind, like, okay, even if we are giving good chest compressions, like, how well are we actually perfusing the brain? How long of us doing CPR do we end up causing, you know, like, not causing, but, like, the lack of good perfusion to the brain? Like, how much brain damage is being done during this time? And then basically, even if we even if we bring the patient back, how functional are, is their life going to be at that point? Like, 
is it have we really just created um, for I know it's not a nice word but lack of a better word a vegetable uh, have we just really created we revived the brainstem enough that the brainstem is able to trigger the heartbeat and we've put a tube down the throat and have machines breathing now we're like in this weird predicament where we brought them back but they're not really back um so that's that's a i mean that's not an issue i've had to deal with per se so that is certainly the the questions that go through the doctor's minds when they decide to run a code and how long they want to run it obviously the goal is to try to bring the patient back no one is doing it with the hope of the patient dying but there's of course a there has to be some kind of cutoff of how long you actually do this because you have resources you have to think about and you and you could run a code for hours and never bring the patient back. And there's been plenty of codes that uh, I've seen in RED that they've ran for hours and the patient never came back. So, um, so and there was good reasons for Friday. some of those. Huh? Friday, Friday, you walked in and they had been running a code for about uh, three hours. Yeah, they, well, I, I was leaving Friday. They, thought... they were in a in an hour and a half. Oh, okay. Of that code. What? I thought you started a shift. There was a shift I did okay. start. They were running the code, and they had ran it for probably about an hour and a half, and then they had to call it. Um, so you do run codes for a very long time. Um, and, I mean, I think they had good reasons for both of those. Um, one, it, you get they get kind of stuck in a situation where the patient was found down for undetermined amount of time and was very cold and they could see some heart rhythm on the monitors that was uh could have been pea it could have been vfib it, could, it was it looked a little weird so they they put a, a temperature probe in found that the patient was like i think they said it was like 75 degrees or something like that like very cold but they they wanted you know it it, it in some cardiac arrest situations, and I don't know, I haven't seen it done in our hospital. I've heard about it, and I've seen it in other in our previous facility in Houston, where sometimes you will cool a patient to hopefully try to preserve by, by lowering the metabolic rate and uh, probably some other reasons, but that's the one that jumps out at me. So you cool a patient in hoping that you preserve brain heart, and other tissue, and in those situations, you can't declare the patient dead until they are warm and dead. So <laughs> in this particular case, they feel like, okay, they're cold. They have some kind of heart rhythm. It's not sustainable. You still have to basically do CPR. But we should keep trying and then try to warm the patient that they had. Um, they had a bladder, they had a Foley in that was basically putting in fluid into the bladder and, and pulling it out. They put two chest tubes in um, on both sides, one putting warm fluids in, one pulling it out out of the pleural cavity, which I'm sure would probably feel awful if you were awake for. Um, and they were doing some, I think they had an NG tube that was doing kind of the same thing in the stomach. So they were doing all sorts of things, different things, trying to warm the patient up while they're trying to do CPR and bring the patient back. They ran that for about three hours before they um, finally had to call it. Uh, the other one, um, I don't want to get too much into, but um, I, all I would say is that it's like a, a general nightmare of, I think, uh, that ED physicians probably live with on a daily basis where you have a patient you send home and then they come back worse. And that's... 
it wasn't R.E.D. It was just a, a different situation altogether. And it certainly is, I think, all E.D. physicians in general have a fear of is you have a patient that comes in with seemingly benign things and then you do what you think is necessary, nothing, nothing extraordinary on your workup, and then you send them home and things don't go well. Um, it's definitely a cautionary tale of like, why certain protocols should be followed 100% of the time. Um, so I don't want to get too much into that, but uh, it was definitely a learning experience, and maybe sometime in the future I'll allude to it, but <laughs> um, it is certainly a learning experience and certainly a tragic case as well. Um, um, but <laughs> Yeah, I mean, Eric... Your last few shifts where you kind of went out with a bang. Well, yes and no. I mean, <laughs> yes and no. A lot, but um, uh, this week has been a lot more, uh, or I guess the last two days have been a lot more calm. Um, oh, it's nice to go to the clinic. I mean, <laughs> as an intern, clinic is great. I have three patients scheduled. Um, I think yesterday only one showed up. And today, both of my two of the ones, one canceled before I even got to clinic and the other two showed up. So two patients really wasn't that bad. Yeah. And Eric got to sit in on, or he got invited to sit in and be a resident. Voluntold. Yeah, he was voluntold (laughs) to be a resident for interviews. Um, So I'm just kind of curious. I know like you had told me a little bit about it, but I was just kind of curious, like, the questions were they similar questions to what you had asked, or were they different, or how did that feel being on the opposite end of it? So there were definitely questions that I had heard people ask. So like oftentimes during these interviews, it's not there are some interview structures where it's like one resident and one um, med student interviewing, um, or like two residents with one. Like it, there's a little bit more of a intimate feel to it where you're the one on the on the spot you get to ask the questions this and but i've been on other interviews that it was a group you know for the resident like there's the resident you know breakout room or something like that and there's multiple people there so multiple people could get to ask questions and this is different from the resident meet and greets so just kind of there's a resident meet and greets where there's like 30 applicants on there and like five residents and it's it's terrible. I hate it. I never, <laughs> I did not, I didn't like it as a, an applicant because I felt like it, it was almost impossible to try to get a good question in. And there was just so many people asking, and I apologize if it sounds mean, but dumb questions. And uh, I like to use the word peacocking because it just felt like people were trying to make sure people knew who they were and what their name was. And they, they really wanted you, the residents to know they were there and they were asking questions and they were interested. And it was just like, this is not real. Like, I hope to God this is not how you are when you are a resident because that this is annoying. And But I get it. I get the, I get the reason why they do it. I get all that because everyone is trying to get a spot. You know, and the only way you get someone saying, hey, so-and-so is really interested in the program is they actually know who you are. And when you have 30 faces on a screen, you're just like, I don't, I don't know who you are. <laughs> um, so this, is, this was different. This was the actual interview day. And interview day, 
again, it could be just a one-on-one sort of thing. Um, and, but I've had ones where there was a group and this was a group. So, uh, you might have two blocks during your interview where you are in the resident lounge, quote and unquote, where the residents get to chat with you and, uh, you can ask them questions and, uh, depends on how it's framed. And again, I wasn't involved in the, the, the lead up to this. I wasn't in the interview where they talked about what the purpose of the resident lounge was. So sometimes they'll tell you, this is a open place. You can ask any questions you want and be as candid as you want. And, um, I, I take that for what it will, you will, because I think generally speaking, that that's the impression is that you can get a, a real understanding of what the residency is like from the residents and not be afraid that if you say something that's not good, <laughs> if you said something that is untoward, that the program won't hear about it or something like that. Uh, you should never operate under that assumption whenever dealing with a program, period. Um, programs are always watching. And I, I'm not saying that as like I saw them watching, but I'm just saying that as like you should always just assume somebody's watching. Like if you're in-person interviews or Zoom interviews, like even if you're sitting in the lobby waiting to be put into another room to meet the interviewer and it's just you and the program coordinator, like you're always being watched. Like, so just assume that you're always being watched. <laughs> it's better off. You're better off that way. That way you don't let your guard down and say something stupid, pick your nose or whatever. Like just anyway, this was a group interview and, um, again, not a lot of, um, um, not a lot of like prompting. We weren't obviously given questions to ask. We were basically like, Hey, we're going to have an interview. Come on in and answer questions. And like, okay, that's what we'll do. And so, uh, a few of us were assigned different times to log in. And so we did. And the interviewees would just ask us questions. Um, there was, uh, I logged in probably about five minutes early and cause I was, I was eating my breakfast. I was eating my lunch, not breakfast <laughs> and before my, my session would start. And I was just listening in on the other group and like, there was a lot of dead, dead air. Like nobody was asking a question and, uh, it's certainly awkward. Um, it's definitely different and I don't know. I don't, I don't really understand again. I don't know what the prompts were, but I still find it weird that applicants will turn off the camera. Like some kept the cameras on and some, you know, turned them off periodically. And I, I generally have my general rule of thumb is is that I don't know if programs care, and I, so this is not any sort of inside information. This is just my own personal opinion. You're in an interview. You're not ducking out of the interview room unless you tell us that you're ducking out for like you need to go. You have to go to the bathroom or something like that. Like sure, that's fine, whatever. But like just. This is the time that you get to ask the residents questions and then you just turn off your camera. It's like, oh, you know, I'm a first year, so that means I got three years in this program to go, a year, two and a half years, but I'll have two years with you if you get into this program. So, like, I, I would like to know who's coming in and, you know, I'm going to be working with you directly. So, like, you, certainly the... 
the people you're interviewing with are going to be probably more important as far as getting getting an actual slot. But like long term might be good to <laughs> make a good impression on the residents that you're going to work with. So and again, in my opinion, is like turning off your camera is not exactly a indicates that you care very deeply for. You know, I'm taking time out of my, I'm taking two hours of my time or whatever it is to to be in the interview. The least you can do is turn your camera on and let the dead air happen. But <laughs> it, it is what it is. Uh, it's not. I mean, not, I don't have strong opinion. I, I do have strong opinions, but I don't actually remember who it was, so I couldn't even. I couldn't even go to the program and be like, this person did that. I, I wasn't paying that close of attention. Um, but it was good. They, they, sorry, you asked about questions. And yeah, a lot of the questions I had heard a lot before, like, what do you guys do? Or what do you do in Cape Fear? What do you like to do? What's the work-life balance look like? Um, always like, oh, what's, what is it to do in Cape Fear? Why did you pick this program? Uh, there were some other ones that were a little bit more pointed on, like, uh, SimLab. And then somebody was a little bit more into asking about didactics, which I think was good. Um, and thankfully, we had a we had a third year in my group that was able to spend a little bit more time talking about... Because some programs have didactics, like, three days a week or five days a week. And it's like, I think th in Northeast Georgia, they had it daily as well. Uh, they had morning report, and then certain days they had didactics. And I appreciated the third year being there because our program, we have didactics on Thursday. We have morning report on Monday. And then if you're on ambulatory clinic, you do have ambulatory didactics on Tuesday, which is what we did today. Um, so you do have a lot of education, which is perfectly fine. That's good. Uh, our program crams a lot of it into Thursday for like, three, four hours. <laughs> so whereas other programs do an hour a day for like three or four days. So you then generally get the same amount of hours, um, but you spread it out. Uh, the third year made the point and you can take it with a grain of salt. It doesn't matter where you end up. You get a residency. It's all good. He made the point that sometimes having it in the every day really breaks up the day. So if you're on inpatient floors, you're just getting done with your morning rounds and finishing up all your orders and discharges. And then you have to stop and go to didactics. And then you have to come back and answer all the nurse calls and all the questions you had and try to finish your notes. And like the senior residents now have had to try to figure out how to get lunch, finish, uh, finish um, morning rounds, get lunch, go to didactics, and then go to multi-disciplinary um, rounds and, and oversee and answer all the questions from the, the junior residents have asked them. It's like, it can be very hard on the senior residents to have that kind of thing breaking up the day every day. Um, it, make, it can make it very difficult. So I do agree with the philosophy of us having one day of didactics. That seems to be nice. Um, obviously, other programs are going to do it differently. And I don't know what's truly the best i'm only i've only experienced this and i'm certain this is how it's always going to be uh, for the next three years i don't know we'll see um i think that's essentially i mean there were okay questions and there were questions i've heard you know we've heard before and you just answer them the best you can and um 
you know, it's hard to also be an intern and be asked some of these questions. I'm realizing now it's like I'm only six months in, so I don't really have a long view of the program. I have six months of what, what I've experienced. And I I don't know all the ins and outs of how the program works and what's happened and why things are the way they are. And so it's, sometimes it's hard to comment on some of that stuff. And well, especially that, that and there's... There has been like a shift in when we started the program, there was a new program coordinator and a new program. Um, the director, director was, he's been in for a year, so he, yeah. he's about a year and a half into his job at this, at this school. facility, yeah, at yeah. this facility. Because he he has worked, at a he, he was a, like an APD somewhere in Philadelphia, yeah, so um. He is slowly making changes in the program in order to make it better. And so there are some changes that, like, Eric's intern class, I guess you would call it, is going to have that, like, the third years are never going to experience or the second years are not going to experience. Yeah. Uh, there, there'll be definitely changes and uh, like all growing things. You got to get everyone on board. You got to, so there's a lot of wheels that have to turn. There's a GME department that you, like you're not just the only residency program, you know, the only program director. You're, <laughs> you're among many program directors and with, with uh, GME directors above you and everyone having a, an opinion of how things should be. So, it becomes trickier, I think, to get things done. But I think our program is making strides in the right direction. It's not doing anything badly. There's strides in the right direction. I will, I guess, comment on um, during the our interview session. Uh, our program had, I think, for ease of transit of moving patient, uh, moving our interviewers, uh, interviewees to and from each Zoom room uh, or WebEx or whatever they call it. Uh, they decided to make the resident room the main lobby, so everyone came back to the main lobby, and you know, and then everyone was shuffled off to where they needed to go, and then you can continue to ask the residents questions. And while that's, I think, probably it was probably good for ease of transit, it had a drawback of the program coordinator had nowhere else to go, <laughs> so. Uh, she, you know, she had turned off her mic. She had turned off her camera, and yeah, uh, for lack of a better word, was just kind of hanging out in the corner. Uh, I don't know. I really don't get the impression that she was listening. She might have been. I don't know. But of course, when you're on any of these Zoom calls, you you can look at the attendance, who's in that room, who's there, and you'll see GME office. Like you see the residents, GME office, and yourself as the one of the interviewers, uh, interviewees, and then another interviewee and another applicant. Like, and but you see the GME office there, and it gives this connotation that they're watching. Like, and you should always assume someone's watching, but this is like a they're what they're really watching. And I did mention to our program that maybe that might be a good idea to put us in a separate room. So that people don't, because I think some on some corners of Reddit, that's seen as a red flag, that the program doesn't want to let the residents talk freely, that the residents are being watched themselves, and that uh, there's no candidness to that conversation. And so therefore, that might be a red flag that the program is malignant. 
And I, I don't think the program is malignant at all. And I, I don't think there was anything maliciously intended by this. Like, I think this was just a organizational thing choice. Um, and maybe I'm wrong. I don't know, but I don't think, and generally speaking, I don't think the program is malignant at all. So <laughs> I, I just would hate to lose good applicants that might rank us lower because they're like, Oh my gosh, they, they don't trust the residents. They're always watching them. And the, the, the GME office just listening to everything. Like they, they won't let us talk candidly. So I'm going to make this program lower. Like I don't want that to happen. I want, I want good, I want people to rank us high. I want good applicants. I want a good class next year that we can work with and it will be great. So that was my suggestion to the GME was just to maybe put us in a different room so that people don't get that impression and that we can carry on, continue to have good conversations with our residents. Because at the same time, maybe that is something that is in the back of the, the applicant's mind is that, oh, the GME office is here listening. I can't ask a maybe more pointed question that is going to come that might come across as weird to the program, but like it's good for me to know. And I don't know what those questions would be off the top of my head, but that could be something that the applicant then kind of holds back instead of asking something that would help them make a good decision of this whether this program is a good fit for them. They're not going to ask it because they think that the GME office is watching. So, yeah. Um, so that was essentially the interview in a nutshell. Um, I don't. I don't really know. So there was something that the, during EM didactics they had mentioned. It was that the applicants mm-hmm. tend to have good feedback about how the residents were hanging out at each other's houses during the interviews, because it kind of showed that there was a lot of camaraderie, as opposed to like everyone's at different locations or everyone's still on the floor working. I don't really know if that's a plus or a minus. I mean, I, I can see how that can be construed as like, you don't mind hanging out with each other, even though it's your off time. Um, maybe, I don't know. Uh, I don't know. I feel like EM is a different, um, it, it's a different atmosphere altogether than I am. Um, but who knows? Um, and I think the emergency medicine department here really does a good job of trying to foster those relationships with yeah, all of I mean, their they, outings they, that they, they do. They constantly like pay for the lunch during didactics for all the residents. They all sorts of fun little outings as part of the didactics. They, they do a really good job. I think in the ED, um, not that it, internal med's bigger. ED is a smaller program in, in number of residents. But like they do a pretty good job in the ED, so I'll have to give them. I have to give them that they do. They do work hard to try to foster a team, team atmosphere to things. And uh, I was talking my, on my last day of the ED rotation. I was working with uh, Doctor Zappa, who is like I don't want to misconstrue. Like he, I know he's like head of the ED, but he's also like head of other departments in the hospital. Like he's pretty high up in the hospital. I would say probably top somewhere in the top 10 of the the people who run the hospital. And so he was working with me, and he had mentioned uh, on my way out that he really tries to build cohesion amongst the different residency and different specialties because, like, that's 
there's something that's really necessary is to have that cohesion between internal medicine and ED. It's good to you know, have the hospitalists in the ED and the surgical departments in the ED, like not just not everything, just the ED, but generally speaking, like you need all the different people who make things happen to work together well. And so he tries very hard to make make that happen. So um, that's always good to hear, you know. It's <laughs> it's not, 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 not always as contentious. I think there's always going to be some kind of contention or rivalry, if you will, uh, between different groups. Like we always like to, in internal medicine, we like to complain about the lack of workup or uh, stuff like that. The ED doesn't do and the ED... Um, gets a little annoyed if we push back on admissions. So everyone has a certain level of like rivalry or a little friction between each group. But I think in general, people try to work well with each other. <laughs> we try, you know. Um, I did want to just talk uh, on some, I guess, some takeaways of what I've, I guess, learned this week. Uh, some bigger ones, ones that I, I've learned kind of the harder way of being kind of hand slapped um, by a (laughs) secure chat message two hours after my shift ended. Uh, Opiate naive patients and opiate dosing. And this is a tough one that I've been trying to put my finger on because I keep hearing different things. And when I try to follow through on one strategy, I, I, I found myself a foul of another one. So Initially in the ED, I was hearing from some of the physicians, and maybe this is just true for the parental parental uh, application of opiates, but they always advocated for like a weight based dosing me- measure when you're, tr- when you're dealing with a patient in pain. Um, don't mess around with small doses. Give them a big dose. You give them a weight based dose. So their general thought, like, let's just say point zero point one. Um, milligrams morphine per kilogram patient so if you have an 80 kilogram patient give them eight milligrams of morphine and then you do whatever the mill equivalence is for hydromorphone and all the other like fentanyl if you want to do fentanyl so that's how you would manage a patient's pain in the ed and so i was trying to take that theory and apply it to a patient that we managed his pain pretty well not overly much in the ed and I wanted to send them home because he will need a few days of pain control for what he was about ready to go to. He was, he was like, let's say a kidney stone. He was gonna, he was gonna pass a kidney stone. And it was gonna suck, and I couldn't give him Toradol, which is usually a kind of goal to. I couldn't give him Toradol, so I was trying to do something different, trying to stay with the mill equivalents, uh, the the same medication class and dose, um, not dose per se, but like the equivalent dose. And apparently on opiate naive patients, pharmacy around here really likes to limit opiate naive to 50 mil equivalents per day of uh, morphine. So don't write a prescription for greater than 50 mil equivalents per day. Uh, I wrote it for 80. Uh, so uh, the pharmacy did not fill that prescription and <laughs> the patient came right back to the ED you know, an hour or so after I had left, and they had to fix that issue. So lesson lesson learned. The patient still got taken care of, which was great. But um, I talked to some of my cohorts, and like, hey, this is the issue I ran into. Because uh, the ED doctor who was trying to help me understand, like, I think he was trying, but at the same time, he was just like, oh, I like to give smaller doses of 
Percocet or oxycodone, but like there was a reason why I didn't choose those, and um, it didn't really explain like maybe you don't do a weight based dose. <laughs> so uh, he didn't really explain it very well. I talked to a few of my cohort, and they're just like, no, start small. Don't don't give high doses. Start small and work your way up. And so, like, their recommendation was, like, weight-based on an outpatient setting doesn't seem to exist. Or that was the kind of takeaway. And, again, I'm, I'm an intern. I'm learning. I'll, we'll figure it out. So that was one thing I learned. Um, 50 mil equivalents cut off for opiate-naive patients. Just remember that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> other things, uh, we did uh, didactics today. So we had UTI didactics um our topic was uti and so um the two the biggest not two takeaways the biggest takeaways i got from it was um for women with uncomplicated utis so no vaginal discharge no fevers no back pain uh, but like with two symptoms of like urinary frequency urgent urgency or dysuria um one of those two two of those three um they have like a 90% probability that they have a UTI and you can give them, you can give them antibiotics without even seeing them and you can give them antibiotics without even having them do a UA. So patient calls and says, I have dysuria and I have increased frequency. I don't have any other issues. I don't have any fevers. I haven't been with different partners, blah, blah, blah. This is, you know, can I get something? Yes, give them a prescription. Like uncomplicated, you know, 18 to 65. That's your range of patient age. You know, not pregnant. <laughs> um, that, that, that's your patient there. So that's one. Um, don't even You don't have to see the patient for those. Um, for the other one was like the three frontline medications is your TMP, SMX, um, I believe that's Bactrim. Uh, I'm not sure if I'm off the top of my head. I think that's Bactrim. Um, Nitrofurotonin is another one. And then ferromycin. Ferromycin. I think that's... um, Those are the three top ones. The the ferromycin is a three gram one dose which is fantastic. It's a little bit more expensive. I think I, we were looking it up today. It was like $27 versus like $4 for a nitrofurotonin. So a bit of a slight cost difference, but the nitrofurotonin, I think you have to do like I think five to seven days, something like that. And you take it a little bit more often. So it's still cheaper. It's just, um, you take it, you take it a few, a lot more days. So that was another thing. Um, the recommendation from the study that we were looking over was essentially like the, the furosomycin, um, and I apologize if I'm butchering that. <laughs> I feel like I'm butchering it. Um, and the nitrofurotonin, those are antibiotics that have very low resistance out there. Like I think it was like 1% to 3% resistance in the, out there. And those are also antibiotics that are just almost solely used for UTIs. So go crazy. Like, no, I mean, no, maybe I don't go crazy, but like use those for sure. Um, uh, the Bactrim, uh, what I'm thinking is Bactrim is the TMP, SMX. 
is used for a few other things, so you could use it for sure. It does have good efficacy in UTIs, but um, certainly <laughs> maybe use the other two first before using the Bactrim. And then you could also use um, a, like a sip, um, a fluoroquinolones, but fluoroquinolones are used widely for other things. So maybe don't make that your first line medication. Fluoroquinolones are great for a whole host of other things from community acquired ammonia to all, you know, all sorts of different things. So don't go to it right away <laughs> if you can help it. And then, there, of course, there's the, um, gosh, I want to say it's amoxicillin, um, but there's a, there's a, pen, like a beta-lactam that is also, but beta-lactams, of course, have high resistance out there, so maybe not always the front line that you would want to go to. Those are the central medical takeaways <laughs> that we had today. Um, anyway, off of that topic, off of that slight lecture there, um, we are going to do Thanksgiving. We are going to have one more day of clinic. We are going to go into nights. And I have no idea how we're going to do recording when I'm on nights, but we will figure something out. Or we might take a two-week hiatus, one of the two. So <laughs> we will see. Anything else you want to? No, have a happy Thanksgiving. Yes, have a happy Thanksgiving, drive safe, and enjoy the time with the family. Bye. Bye.